Hey, uh, it is my privilege to introduce our guest speaker today, uh, coming all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, to be with us, Ashley Smith Robinson. Ashley is known uh, worldwide, nationwide, as the single mother who persuaded convicted killer Brian Nichols to surrender to police. Ashley's life changed dramatically on March 11, 2005, when Brian forced his way into her apartment following his deadly rampage at an Atlanta County courthouse. After offering Nichols her remaining stash of methamphetamines, she read to him from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. Ashley credits these conversations and God's spirit for releasing uh, her after seven hours of being held captive from Brian Nichols. Please welcome Ashley Smith Robinson to the stage. Welcome, Ashley. So glad you're here. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Union Chapel. I turned this on. There we go. Good morning, Union Chapel. I promise that picture up there is the same person that's on stage. It was like that picture was about one baby ago and a couple of years ago, too. So I just embrace my curls now. Anyways, I'm glad to be with you guys this morning, excited about what God's going to do. I'm just going to go ahead and get started and tell you guys that when I was younger, I grew up in a home that I thought was pretty typical. Uh, my biological father, however, was a severe drug addict and alcoholic, and so he and my mom got divorced when I was about one and a half years old. I saw him in my life maybe about 10 times, and he died in 2012, which was probably a good thing that he wasn't in my life because um, it left room for my grandparents to come in and help my mom, who, of course, was a single mom. She was a very busy um, professional woman, and so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, a lot of time meaning probably three or four nights out of the week. Now, my grandpa was a retired Marine, or he was a Marine for 25 years. Um, he was the headmaster of the private Christian school that I went to until eighth grade, and he was also a non-denominational preacher. To say I had structure in my life would be a complete understatement. A lot of times I woke up to da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
um, played football at Liberty. He brought this wonderful, beautiful blonde lady home um, who played basketball uh, at Liberty when I was seven years old, and I thought that was so cool. So she taught me everything she knew, and I knew that one day I wanted to play basketball in college. Now, as I grew up, when I was about 11 years old, I was at basketball practice, and my mom showed up to pick me up. And she had this man with her that I had never, ever seen. And the way that she introduced me to him, she said, Hey, Ash, this is Larry. He's going to be your new dad. What? Like, I've never met this man before, Mom. Well, that was her way of telling me that they were going to get married. Well, of course, I did not like that idea at all because not only did I realize that it was going to take me away from my grandparents because my mom was going to quit her job and be a stay-at-home mom because this new man had this company and they could, she could stay home and take care of me and we could just be a happy little family. But I didn't get to spend as much time with my grandparents. But I also did not like this man at all. He was a perfect stranger to me, and I didn't want to live in his home, okay? But anyways, I had to live in his home, and we began to be a family. And they got married in May. Um, around Christmas time, he came up to me, and he said, Listen, I know you don't like me, but if you'll just give me a chance, I promise you, I'll give you anything you want for Christmas. And I said, Anything? And he goes, yeah, I'll give you anything. You Just give me a chance. And I'm like, all right. Well, I'd like a baby brother for Christmas. Okay. Well, needless to say, I got an awesome pair of Nike tennis shoes for Christmas that year. Um, but nine months later, my little baby brother Christian was born. And I thought he was the coolest thing in the world because I got to name him after my very favorite basketball player, Christian Leitner. Well, Nine months and three weeks after my little brother was born, my little sister was born. And I didn't ask for her. I wanted to put her back when she came out. So I'm telling you guys that so you'll know that my life from the time I was a zero until about 12, almost 13 years old, was all about me. My whole family was all about me. Everyone was worried about me, and they showed all my attention. Uh, they came to all my basketball games. I got everything I wanted, and it was all about me. Now, I'm pretty sure my mom wanted no more kids after me. She was just trying to appease my stepdad and myself to have more kids so she had two children under the age of two and a teenager by this time and she was pulling her hair out and she was like you can you can deal with yourself you can dress yourself you can do this and I began to kind of get lost some more things began to change in my life and although we were churchgoers and I was active in the youth group and and Jesus was still in my life I began to kind of fall off a little bit, but my family realized, oh my, eighth grade, she's doing really good. A lot of people want her on, ba on their basketball team, and I actually had a shot of getting a scholarship, and so my family said, let's take her out of this Christian school, and let's put her in public school so she can, she can get some exposure. Major culture shock. When you go from being come out of the womb, put into this public or private Christian school where all you hear about is Jesus from your school and your family, and then all of a sudden you're thrown in public school where anything goes, it was kind of a culture shock to me. But I did okay. I made the varsity basketball team ninth grade. I did good 10th grade, 11th grade, and I kept focus, and my life was still really good. I would tell you at 16 years old, I had everything you could imagine. I had a phenomenal family. I had a relationship with the Lord. I had 
opportunities and scouts coming to, to offer me scholarships for basketball. I had the coolest car. I had the coolest boyfriend, or so I thought. But for something, still, still something felt like it was missing in my life, and I didn't know what it was. Well, the summer before my senior year, I thought I had found what that was. See, I had always been an athlete, and people knew me for my athletics. But not everyone knew me because I was cool or because I was popular. And for some reason, I wanted to be that way. Well, one day this girl came up to me, and she was one of the coolest girls in schools, and she said, hey, listen, we like you, and we want you to come hang out with us. And it's, um, we're going to be seniors next year. We're going to have this summer. We're going to throw all these parties, and we're going to show the school exactly what seniors do. And I'm like, all right, I have totally arrived. This is cool. I want to go here. And so I began to go to these parties, and I remember the first party I went to, I pulled up and I got out of the car, and, and all of these kids that I looked up to, that I admired, they were like literally falling downstairs, and some of them were like bleeding, but they were laughing hysterically, and I'm like, what's so funny? You look like a fool. And then I began to smell this really funny smell, and then I began to realize that these kids were either drunk or high on something. And I stopped in my tracks immediately and I was like, wow, I need to get out of here as fast as I can because this is not what I thought was happening. But then Satan sat on my shoulder where he would sit for the next 10 years and he began to tell me, but look, they're having so much fun. Nothing's happening to them, nothing bad. They're laughing, they're having a good time. This is what you wanted. Just do it, have fun. And I wish I could tell you a different story, but unfortunately I began to believe Satan's lies that all that was fun and all that was a good time. I didn't do anything that day, but every party thereafter for the next 10 years I began to participate in all of those activities. And if you use your brain right now and you can think of something that is horrible or something that is offered, or if you can think it up, I promise you I have done it. My senior year in high school, I played every single basketball game stoned out of my mind. I still scored 20 points a game. There were scouts all over the stands sitting there coming to offer me scholarships. But you know what? Not one of them offered me a scholarship. Because although my abilities were still good, my attitude began to change. When I began to curse out my teammates and my coach and the way that I treated my parents afterwards, and they didn't want to have anything to do with me. And quite honestly, I didn't want to have anything to do with them anyways. All the blood, sweat, and tears, and I promise you it was blood, sweat, and tears from the time I was seven years old until the time I was 17 years old, and I threw that dream away so I could go out and party and have a good time with my friends. I graduated from high school. I went on to enroll into a college that I never, ever went to. When you don't go to college, they put you on academic suspension, so I went and got a job as a waitress. And I remember being in a pool hall one night. I looked up and I saw what I thought was the most amazingly cute guy I'd ever seen in my life. And when I saw him, I thought, that's going to be my husband right there. And so we began to date that night. And he solved this problem that I had. See, I didn't want to obey my parents' rules or my grandparents' rules and come home at like 1130. I mean, that was like crazy. Why would I want to do that when I could stay out all night and go party and have a good time? Please hear the sarcasm in my voice. But he, did, he had his own home, he had his own construction company, and, and I thought, boy, I've struck it good here. I can just live with him, we can get married, live happily ever after, party when we want to, and life will go on. Well, that went on for about 10 months, and my family began to accept him. We went to Thanksgiving dinner one day, and we ate, and the next morning I got real sick. And then I got sick the next morning, 
And I got sick the next morning. I called my mom. I was like, something was wrong with that food because I have been sick ever since. She goes, well, nobody else is sick. What's wrong with you? I said, I've been sick every morning for four days, Mom. And she goes, really? (laughs) Well, let's go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor, and the doctor proceeded to tell me that I was going to have a baby. I wasn't really sick, but I was going to have a baby. And I remember stopping there going, oh, my goodness. I am at 19, almost 20 years old. I'm not married. My family did not teach me this. This is not what I wanted for my life. How did this happen? And then I was scared to death because I knew exactly what my boyfriend was going to say. And sure enough, when I called him and told him I was pregnant, he said, you have two choices. You can have an abortion and you can stay in this house or you can get out because I am not going to be a father. And I remember thinking this person that told me that he loved me every day for the last 10 months and praised me so much, he didn't love me. He was rejecting me and his child. Well, I knew that God had given me a gift despite my bad choices. And so I moved home to my parents' house. And here's the part where I tell you that I began to like my stepdad because I'm pretty sure that he called my boyfriend and scared the life out of him because about two weeks later, he called back and he said, listen, I'm sorry for what I said and let's make things right. Let's get married. And so we did. We got married and we began to live our life. And and, um, as I was pregnant, I, I I settled down. I didn't party, although he did. Um... Our daughter was born at 30 weeks. She weighed 2 pounds, 14 and a half ounces, and she fit in our hand. And I remember looking at him going, okay, look, God blessed us with a life, okay? I wish I could say that my relationship with my husband and my marriage with him was based on the Lord, but it wasn't. It was based on partying and having a good time. We went to church three times in our entire marriage, which was Christmas, Easter, and Christmas again. But as we looked at our little girl, I remember thinking, okay, look, we have this gift. And not only is she a precious child that we have to take care of, she's fighting for her life at 2 pounds and 14 ounces. we got to do something. So we began to settle down. Like I said, he owned his own construction company, and, and he allowed me from that point on to stay home with her and take care of her and take care of our family and do the business sometimes. But we began to settle down. But there was still one night of every weekend that we would go out and have what we said was a a date night. It really wasn't a date night. It was a night for us to go find our friends and get our hands on as much drugs as we could that night. It's a really sad story, but that is the honest truth about what happened. That uh, every weekend... One of those nights, it would, it would be a good thing if we even went to sleep that night. But our daughter would spend the night off and we would go get her the next day. That went on for about two and a half years. And on August 18th of 2001, we went out like we always did. Unfortunately, the night ended a little bit differently. My husband ran into some people that didn't like him. And to make a very long story short, he was stabbed in the heart. And he died in my arms two minutes later. And I remember looking down at him going wait a minute, this is like my everything. This is my husband. This is my best friend. This is the man that's provided everything to me. This is the man that I've actually put above God in my life. But more importantly, he was the one person that was going to love my daughter unconditionally, that always loved her and put her first. And in an instant, without me even realizing it, he was gone. My family, who loves Jesus very much, came to me and they kept saying, Ash, don't you understand that God is trying to show you that you've gone off on a bad path. You need to just get back right with him. And then my family said this, we knew that was going to happen. 
Well, you know what I did at that point in time? I felt like my family wasn't loving me, wasn't showing me empathy, but they were judging me. And so I put up this massive big wall against my family. And when my friends came over and said, here, take this, that'll make the pain go away. If you just do this, it won't hurt anymore. And all I wanted was for it to stop. I didn't want to feel it. I wanted to be numb. I didn't want to face anything and face reality. I just wanted it all to go away. And so I began to do more and more and more drugs. You know, when you get in that position, when I was 17 years old and I went to that first party and I smoked my first joint, and I didn't say, hey, this sounds like a really good idea because I'm going to smoke this and in 10 years I'm going to be a strung out meth head. No, that's not at all what happened. I was like, oh, this will just be fun. Well, meth was the one thing that I promised myself I would never, ever do throughout my cycle of life. All other things I promised myself I would never, ever do, I always did. But in February of 2003, I began to date the meth dealer. And once again, in like high school, he was giving it to all my friends, and my friends were getting skinny, and they had energy, and I'm naturally hyper anyway, so I wanted more energy. Why not? Let's just do it. They're just having fun, just like high school. Well, after I did that, after I did meth for the first time, after about a month later, I was in such a state of psychosis that I began to think terrorists were after me. I was driving my car down the road one day, and I heard God, I thought, say, Ashley, let go and let God. And I remember stopping going, let go of the steering wheel? Like, are you serious, God? What are you going to do, just take control of the car? Well, I let go of the steering wheel, and I was in an accident and ended up in intensive care for 18 days. Now, hindsight's 2020. I'm pretty sure God meant let go of the drugs, but at the time, I thought he meant the steering wheel. That almost cost me my life. While I was in the hospital, of course, my aunt, who is a a very God-fearing, loving doctor's wife, she's raised four beautiful kids, she came to me and she said, Listen, in the event that you accidentally or purposely kill yourself while you're on drugs... Well, you need to sign these custody papers. And I'm like, what do you mean custody papers? You're not taking my kid away from me. And she said, Ashley, you need help. And I said, no, I don't need help. I don't need your help, and I don't need anybody's help. I'm fine. And she said, you have to sign these papers. Of course, she, didn't, she couldn't make me, and she had absolutely no evidence that she could take my kid away from me. But this woman told me, of course, ever since I've gotten better, she told me that the next week she prayed, Lamentations 2.19, that says, Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of night begin. Pour out your heart like water for the lives of children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. I'm 100% sure that she prayed that. She fell on her face every day, multiple times a day, and prayed that prayer. Because I was so adamant about not giving her my child. But a week later, as I began to see meth heads come in my house, and they didn't, they didn't hurt my child, but even when they would go, Oh, hey, how you doing, little cutie? I was like, cringe. And go, oh my goodness, get away from her. Well, a week later, I picked up the phone and I called my aunt and I said, you know what, you're right. I don't love myself enough to stop. As a matter of fact, I don't know how to stop. The only thing I know how to do is just get up and get high and hang out with the people I hang out with. But I love this little girl enough just to get her out of here. And I promise you that is my saddest day of my entire life. Because I began to realize that I had chosen drugs over the one thing, the one gift that God had given me. She didn't even have a father anymore. She just wanted to be loved, and I couldn't even give her that. 
Of course, I did what I did best at that point in time and just cover all the emotions up. I didn't want to feel it. See, Satan kept telling you, you're ugly. Remember that drug? Remember that guy? Remember this? Remember that? God doesn't love you anymore. You call yourself a Christian? (laughs) God will never, ever forgive you. And then I began to run into different people that were supposed to be righteous and holy, and, and they would judge me and this and that, and I was just like, no, no thanks. I'm good where I am. My life began to change after I signed those custody papers because the custody papers said that if I held down a stable home and I went to rehab that I could have my child back. And there is nothing I wanted more in my life than to have my child back. But I wanted to deserve her first. I went away to rehab, two rehab programs because the papers said I had to, not because I needed help. I didn't need help at that time. Please hear the sarcasm in my voice once again. I got high both times on the way home from rehab. But see, my life began to change in December of 2003 because my family, who had loved me through everything, Christmas, Easter, birthdays, every holiday, they would always keep the doors wide open. I could come as high as I wanted to, and they always loved me. But this year it was a little bit different because I showed up at my parents' house about 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. I was high as a kite, and I thought it'd be cool to bring my brother and sister Christmas presents from Santa while I was way high on meth. My mom opened the door, and she just looked at me, and she goes, just come in. She said, try to get some sleep for the next two hours. Well, my phone rang, and of course, my aunt, who had custody of my daughter, I was excited to spend Christmas with her. She said, Ashley, listen. We don't want you to come this morning. We don't want to see you the way you are anymore. You need help. Do not come. You can spend 30 minutes with Paige this morning, but that's it. And see, I thought my family was celebrating and had the most wonderful Christmas when in actuality, they've since told me that all it was was a whole day of tears of me not being there. But you know what? I began to realize that I needed help. So I went away to a recovery program, and I began to go to church at that recovery program, and I began to talk to God. And I began to say, God, I need you to help me. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. But I didn't begin to listen to God. I just began to talk to him again. Well, I got out of rehab, and I did okay for about eight months. Well, four months in rehab and four months out of rehab. I relocated from a different town, so my family thought it would be a bad idea to go back to the same surroundings. So I relocated to Atlanta, and um, I did well there for about four months. I got a job. I was visiting with my daughter. Um, I got a house. I got a car. Different things started happening. But you know what? When I left God at rehab and I began to do life on my own again, I quickly found the drug dealer in Atlanta. And I went on a seven-month relapse that would be the most miserable relapse of my entire life. Actually, the most miserable time of my life. Because for eight months, I knew what it was like to be normal again. I knew what it was like to, to, be peace, to feel peace again. And for some reason, I just gave it away. February 7th of 2005, my family, my cousin actually, who was one of my best friends but had distanced herself from me for a very good reason, she called me out of the blue and she said, hey, listen, I need you to come home. And I'm like, what? First of all, you haven't called me in years. Second of all, why do you need me to come home? I need to ask you something. I'm like, oh, this must be like death or something. So I drove home from Atlanta to Augusta, which is originally where I'm from. 
And my cousin looked at me and she said, hey, listen, I'm getting married and I want you to be in my wedding. And I began to weep. And I began to say, but, but why? Why do you want something as ugly and as disgusting as me in your wedding? And she said, because I love you. And I looked at her and I was like, all right, but why do you love me? And she said, just because I do. And my aunt looked at me and she said, you know what, if you give your life back to Jesus, maybe one day we'll be planning a wedding for you. And for some reason, for the first time in a very long time, I began to have hope. I began to have this tiny mustard seed of faith that maybe what my aunt was saying was true. She then said, hey, listen, we're going to church tomorrow. You need to come. And I looked at her and I said, what? Church? I can't go to church. And she said, why not? I said, because when I walk in, all the walls will cave in on the people and I'll kill everybody there. And she looked at me and she said, honey, you're not that important. (laughs) And I was like, okay. So I went to church the next morning, and I walked in, and the walls didn't cave in. You know what happened instead? I felt God's big, mighty arms wrap around me and say, I love you. There is absolutely nothing you can do to make me not love you. Satan has beginning to to take over your mind, but I am in your heart, and I love you. And I began to think to myself, But God, why am I still here? Anything that I've ever defined myself as, I'm not anymore. I'm not a wife. I'm not a mom. I'm not a good example. I'm not living my life as a Christian. I'm not even a positive member in my family. Why am I still here? Right about that time, the pastor got up and he said, Hey, we're going to be starting this book right here. Um, It's called The Purpose Driven Life. And I looked at the front of it. On the front of it, it said, What on earth are we here for? And I was like, Ha ha, that's funny. So I grabbed the book and I took it home and I began to read it for the next 33 days. And I I said to God, God, I want my life to change. I'm not going to tell you that I'm done doing drugs because I don't even trust my own self-control. But I know I want to be done. So if you help me change, I promise you I will change. And I began to read The Purpose Driven Life and I began to read the Bible. And God began to show up. March 11th, 2005 is the day that changed my life forever. My stepdad called and he said, Honey, there's a man that's escaped from the Atlanta courthouse. He's killed four people. He's on the loose and he's going to come get you. I know that sounds really crazy, but my stepfather, who I consider my father, has told me four different times something what's going to happen in my life. And I never believe him. But I will today, I promise you, if he ever tells me again. Because I went to work that day, and I noticed some police officers there. And the police officers looked at me, and I said, Have y'all caught that man that was out on the loose yet? They said, No, don't worry about him. He's in Alabama by now. I lived in Georgia. So I went home. I got off work, and and I was unpacking some things. And and I decided I was going to go out for, for a cigarette. And I noticed this truck pulling up. Well, no big deal. I turned around. I walked back. I was walking back up to my front door, and I heard him get out of the truck and walk up behind me. And it scared me, so I began to run to my front door, and when I turned around, there was this man pointing a gun at my face. And I remember screaming as loud as I could, and he said, if you shut up, I won't hurt you. 
Well, I don't know about you, but if you've got a gun pointed at your face and somebody's telling you to do something, you do it. So I began to scream, and then I stopped screaming. When he stopped, he grabbed me, he took me inside. He said, do you know who I am? And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who he was at all until he started explaining himself to me, and he said, do you know, you've been watching the news, you know, the man that escaped from the courthouse, and I just knew I was going to die. Now, this man held me hostage for the next seven hours, but it's important that I tell you, in the very first hour and a half, he asked me a simple question. I don't know. I guess I just looked like your typical dope head at the time, okay? But he looked at me about an hour and a half into it. And he said, hey, you got any drugs? And I had done meth the night before this happened to me. That was one of the two times that I had used drugs during those 33 days of me reading The Purpose Driven Life. And for some reason, I knew that he would find it. And so I got it out for him, and I said, here, here it is. And he asked me three times, you want to do this with me? How about you do this with me? Come on, let's do this together. And I promise you, as God is my witness, I know for a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ took the body of Brian Nichols. And Brian Nichols wasn't asking me to do drugs with him, but Jesus was asking me if I wanted my life to change. If I wanted my life to change, then I was to say no to those drugs, and he would give me a life that I could never, ever imagine. But if I wanted to continue that life, then I would do the drugs, and Jesus was going to bring me home. See, I didn't know if I had five minutes to live or if I had 50 years to live, but I knew I was not about to do drugs and die and go meet Jesus. That just wasn't good for me. And I looked at Brian Nichols. I said, I am never, ever doing those drugs again. And by the grace of God, I have not touched those drugs since the day before Brian Nichols came into my life. You want to know what happened after that, though? Immediately, I felt like I was no longer in control of my life or that night. And Brian Nichols was no longer in control of that night or my life. But Jesus Christ was in control of my life. And I began to see Brian Nichols as a sinner saved by God's grace. I know that sounds strange, but I've been on the both sides of, of this situation here. Somebody brutally took my husband away from me. I knew what he did to four people's families. But also, I realized that God was looking down on two people that he had given his life for. And the grace was not only there for me to grab, but it was there for Brian Nichols to grab too. A lot of things happened during that night. I don't have time to go into it. I've got a book out there for sale in the movie, of course, can tell you a lot of details. I want to tell you, though, about 8.30 in the next morning, Brian Nichols looked at me. He knew I was supposed to visit with my daughter the next day. And he said... Um, what time do you need to leave to see Paige? And I was like, now looks like a really good time for me to go. And this man that brutally murdered four people could have easily raped me, beat me, cut me up in little pieces and left me there because I had just moved in that apartment two days before. Not even my family knew where I lived. Nobody. The only people that knew that I was there that night was Jesus. And he reached down into the pits of hell that my life had become, despite me thinking he didn't love me anymore. And he said, you don't belong there. You don't want to be there anymore. You're giving me your garbage, and I'm bringing you out. I walked out into the next day. He let me go free. I called the police. They came and got him. He surrendered. The next day on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was a two-page picture of me. And it said, an angel sent from God. And I was like, Pfft. Like maybe more like a meth head sent from God or something. But I knew walking out that next morning 
that God had literally changed me from the inside out. I began to dig into the Word of God and say, God, why? All of these four well-respected people in this community, they gave life to people. Why did you save the lonely, widow, drug addict mom and call her some hero? What do you want from me? But I began to dig into God's Word and He began to show me that people in the world were hurting. That my testimony, if I would just be willing to go share every single bit of it, even the hard stuff, that He would use it for His glory. And I knew from that point on that all I cared about doing was making Jesus happy. That was the most important thing. Do I still fall short every day? Absolutely. Can I get an amen, please? <laughs> but it's different because God is there walking through me every day. When you wake up in the morning and you have a decision, God, you can use me today however you want to. That is my prayer every time I get up. Lord, I don't even want these people to hear from me. I have nothing good to say. Just speak through me. Give him full reign. My daughter actually is 17 years old now. She was five years old at the time. I, of course, have custody of her again. I'll share one last story with you, and then I'll, I'll be done. Um, in 2005, when all of this started happening to me, the meth dealer that I talked about, my meth dealer boyfriend, he went to prison. And uh, while he was in prison... Um, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll send him a Bible. I'll send him a copy of The Purpose Driven Life, and I'll send him my book because they changed my life. Maybe they'll change his life. So I wrote him a letter. I sent him this stuff, and I was like, listen, I'm not trying to be your girlfriend. I'm just trying to be your friend, okay? These books helped me. They can help you maybe. And so he wrote back and thanked me, said he was in Bible study and all this stuff. Well, he got out of prison in January of 2006, and he called me. He lived about two hours away. He had a daughter that lived in my town, though. And he said, hey, I'm home. Can I see you? And I was like, no way. Well, I'm different. And I was like, okay, I'm glad you're different. But look, the ex-meth dealer and the ex-meth head don't get back together after a bunch of years and live happily ever after, okay? That ain't God's plan for me. Well, this man was extremely persistent. So for the next six months, he called me once a month and he said, please, let me just show you that I'm different. I'm like, no, whatever, just leave me alone. I'm glad you're different. Have your life. I'll have mine. Well, June of 2006, my phone rings. Of course, it's him. And I answer the phone. I'm like, let me guess. You want to take me out, right? He goes, yes, please just give me a chance. And for some reason, God stopped me right there and said, just give him a chance. Of course, I was still big and bad. And I was like, listen... I'm going to let you come take me out, and I'm going to show you why we don't need to be together, okay? This is just not right for us. Well, we will celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary um, next year. Um, <laughs> and when... <clears throat> because when my husband or when my boyfriend, whatever he was at the time, came and knocked on the door, it sounded different. When he wrapped his arms around me, it felt different. And when me and my ex-meth dealer boyfriend sat down in our first date for the rest of our lives and we began to talk about Jesus, I knew that he was the person I was going to do life with forever. We have a five-year-old beautiful little boy. My husband's a very successful um, electrician. I actually went back to school. I'm an x-ray tech. I do x-rays and CTs. And, and God has just tremendously blessed my life. If you are looking for hope today, you may not struggle with drugs, but there is always something in our life that we struggle with. We have to succumb to it daily. 
and put God first every day. You can find hope through him, and I hope you found that today. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for allowing me to be here today. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your power. I thank you for the mighty grace, the mighty, just everything that you show to us. Despite us falling short, you still love us through it. And I appreciate the fact and love that one day I'm going to get to celebrate with you forever. The song earlier said that heaven is our home. This is just a place that we're visiting. And I pray that each one of us remember that this place here, we're just visiting. Our home is in heaven with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.